Hi, my name is Melanie Hibbard, and my definition of relentless is to never give up. One door closes, find another door. If another door isn't there or is closed, grab a window. Always, always keep pushing. Welcome to the Relentless Podcast. I am Kyle Dubay, and on this episode, we have Melanie Hibbard. And Melanie is probably one of the, the strongest advocates in the area of type 1 diabetes and we're going to talk to her today about her journey why she got into this what happened in her life to to really make her relentless uh as she she works to help people uh, with type 1 diabetes melanie it's so good to have you here well thank you for having me appreciate it yeah listen we caught wind of you off of another podcast that you were on good friend of ours carrie doll had you on her podcast the inner circle and we just really thought this would be cool. You and I ended up having a great conversation yesterday. And I just think your story is really quite interesting of, of why you got into this, this work and this field, kind of what led you here, but then also your journey as a mom uh, of two boys who have type 1 diabetes. They were diagnosed quite young. So let's, let's get into that a little bit. Let's talk about you, kind of where you come from and, and what you were doing that prior to all this uh, type 1 diabetes work. Sure. Um, well, I'm from Edmonton, so uh, uh, born and raised here. Um, and I was in the banking industry for 23 years before I went, you know, I think there's time for a change. And uh, in that time, my kids had been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And so I'd always been volunteering and giving back and trying to figure out a way that they wouldn't have diabetes anymore. You know, what can I do as a parent? And you know, I got introduced to Dr. Shapiro and Driftcan, and so it kind of just all was serendipitous that I ended up in the not-for-profit sector and uh, raising money to find a cure for diabetes. So let's let's talk about that a little bit. Your boys um, were, were, I mean, whenever people get, let's talk about type 1 diabetes because okay. when do people typically get diagnosed with this? So typically as children, okay. but you can be diagnosed with diabetes at any age. Sure. It used to be called juvenile diabetes. Yes. And so people would think, oh, you turn 18 and then you're cured from diabetes. Well, not the case. So right. once you're diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, you have type 1 diabetes. There's Forever. no cure. Forever. Forever. There's no cure. Um, there's a treatment. They take insulin. And so for some people, they think that's a cure, but it's not. It's just a treatment that keeps them alive every day. Uh, so yeah, they, they were diagnosed. My oldest is now 23, but he was diagnosed at the age of four. And then 15 months later, my 18 month old was diagnosed and he's now 19. So, you know, different opinions. Some people say, oh, that's horrible that they were diagnosed at such a young age. But for me, I, I'm almost relieved that they got diagnosed so young because they know nothing different. You know, they... This is just their life. They've never, they don't remember a life without diabetes. So, well, in some ways, they never had one. That's right. Right. That's right. So, and you know, a day in the life for a person with type 1 diabetes is they have to check their blood sugar minimum four to six times um, a day using either a finger poker or, you know, there's new technology where they can swipe a, and have an app on their phone and right. they can check their blood sugar, which is pretty cool. Yeah. 20 years ago, we didn't have that. Yeah. Um, they have to give insulin minimum three to four times a day, but now we're an insulin pump 24 hours a day. So it injects insulin every just automatically, five, automatically. Yeah. and then they have to, if they eat, they have to weigh and measure their carbohydrates and then they have to input how many carbs that they're gonna eat. And then they give themselves insulin based off that. So how, uh, 
I, I like to ask a lot of questions because hopefully it's going to help people understand the same way it's going to help me understand. Why did your boys have type one diabetes? Right. Like, is that is it common to have more than one child? No, no. So, so t- talk about that. So it's genetic. So it's an autoimmune disease, and majority of people who are diagnosed with type one end up having a virus or some illness before, and then it triggers that the pancreas, whatever that one percent of the pancreas that produces insulin, it's affected by the virus. But they're genetically, you know, their disposition is. D- they're going to get diabetes. It right. just is a matter of when it's going to happen. Right. So they were born with it. Um, and it's really ironic as neither of my husband or I have diabetes and nobody in our family does. Hmm. Um, so it's genetic. And the thought is that we had a recessive gene between the two of us. So we have a type one child. And then when he was going through the training at the Stollery and our youngest, Travis, was just three months old, they, I was panicking going, oh, no, you know, are they both going to get it? And they're like, no, no, no. It's like less than a 0.5% chance your second would have it. Right. And then 15 months later, he was diagnosed. So how do you know that they have it? Like, are, are you, right. are, yeah, like what are the signs? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so for us and many people, it's like they have a bladder infection. So they start drinking lots more, um, tired. So ours, he was, Connor was four. He was starting to have to have naps again. He was drinking excessive amounts of um, water and then he wanted juice, which is, ironic because the blood sugars then were spiking more because he was drinking juice um going to the bathroom lots um, which is a little bit more tricky when you have an 18 month old because all of a sudden you know he was potty trained and then all of a sudden he was having so many accidents so we had to put him back into pull-ups and we just you know you just never know what's going on so with our oldest we were lucky um we decided to just take him to the pediatrician and say you know this is the symptoms and you know it's really funny because the look on his face when i look back now i can remember it clearly was he knew as soon yeah. as I was telling him all these symptoms, he said, you know, you're just going to take him. He's going to pee in this cup and we're just going to dip it with this little stick. And, you know, we'll just see what's going on. I'm like, okay. So we go do that, come back. And after they did it, I had my three-month-old in the car seat beside me and the nurse comes in and removes Travis from the room. And the nurse comes in to sit beside me. And I said, I'm thinking this is not a bladder infection. Right. Um, but I had no idea because I had no experience with it. And he grabbed, our pediatrician grabbed my hands and put his knees up against mine and said, listen, um, Connor has type one diabetes and life as you know it has changed. It'll hmm. never be the same again. And so that's how he was diagnosed. And then you get sent to the Stollery for four days of intense training where they teach you how to weigh and measure all the food, count the carbohydrates, and draw insulin to a small amount that they tell you, this is where it has to be on the syringe. If you give too much, you can kill him. And if you give too little, he can die. And so you're... you're it's a lot. I, I, have, no, I have no medical training. No. So I'm like, okay. So you're, after, you're a banker. Yeah, that's right. So after four, which is ironic because I never knew how much... Good thing I had some good times with math, numbers. And math. Sure. <laughs> That's all it is, is math, calculating everything. But after four days, they send you home and they say, um, you know, you don't want to go home. Because you're like, well, I got, it's like when you have a newborn and you're like, what do I do with this thing now? Now it's like, wait a minute, now I could kill him. Sure. And so they said, as long as you follow all the rules and you do everything like we taught you for the last four days, he will be fine. And you have to be so diligent on that. So you have to be like 
it's crazy how to diligent a to, a to a T. Yeah. And back then, this is 20 years ago, when you drew up the insulin, it was like this tiny little syringe and you have this little thing of vial of insulin. And back then they didn't even have the markers on the on the needles that were so little of amount of insulin that a four-year-old needed. So they would say, just the little rubber stopper, just keep pulling it till you think it's about right here. Yeah, to eyeball it. And yeah. And then they would say, but don't give too much. Oh, man. So you, can't, you get sent home and for that... For that 30 days, I'm very fortunate. My husband is a paramedic. Okay. So he understood and actually pros and cons, pros for me. I had somebody at home who had dealt with stuff like this, but a con, he knew what could go wrong like sure. nobody else's business because he had picked up patients that of course have had not great results sure. from their diabetes. So there was this mix. So for the There next, were probably times that you were catastrophizing too, thinking, oh my goodness, like if we go a little bit too over this, like yeah, just constant oh, playing in yeah, your mind. And you don't sleep. No. So then you you check your kids. So anybody that has a young child with type 1 diabetes, um, for the first 30 days, uh, one of us slept with him at all times just for fear that he wouldn't wake up. I'm surprised so, it's only 30. Well, like, then, but then you go to the, back to the stallery and they're very you know, diligent. And some people say, well, they're so mean. And it's like, they're not mean. They're trying to get you back into life because sure. life will become the new normal. Sure. But if you live in fear, yeah. you can't, uh, that live, makes in, sense you though, can't right? live in fear. No. So they're very you know, supportive in, in that way. Uh, yeah. They're fantastic. Without the Pediatric Diabetes Education Center at the Stollery Hospital, my kids would not be alive today. Interesting. It would not and, be alive and, today. And that makes sense because again, we're not educated in this. No, no, right? nobody is. So how did your oldest boy's name is Connor? Yeah. And then Travis, yep. like for both of them, how did they, I mean, as a four-year-old, I remember taking my boys to the doctor to get a needle. Not a pleasant experience at all. Um, they, it still isn't a pleasant experience for them. And they're 21 and, you know, like that's, they're, they're the same age as your boys essentially. And so now these little boys, mom and dad have to give them needles every day. Right. That must have been hard. Well, it's interesting because for, I think, I don't know, there's this thing with people who are young kids get diagnosed with diabetes, but they're so resilient. Mm. And there's this old soul in them. And not all are the same, but my kids were that way. So we just had, we sat down with Connor and we're like, okay, so we started thinking about ways that, you know, we could make this easier, make this fun or whatever. So this, I mean, not everybody believes in bribery, but our pediatrician will say, really? You got to do what you got to do. I'm a big believer in it. Life or death, this is what you do. So I went to the dollar store and I spent $50 on just a bunch of whack of like, you know, treats and um, like coloring and toys and whatever crap that, you know, we didn't really need in our house. But we would say to them, so we're going to have to do this. We got to do this finger poke. You got to do this needle. Every time you do one, you get to reach into the bag and pull out a treat. Sure. Um, There's a lot of treats. And he loved it. So we did it for 30 days. Until he, and no tears. He had no tears. He never cried. And one day he said to me, um, I was crying because I, I, I did not go into anything medical because that's not what I want to do. Yeah. So to give him a needle was just heart wrenching. Mm. And so I would cry every once in a while and try to hide it. And he's like, it's okay, mom. It's mm. okay. And I'd be like, how is this even possible that this four-year-old? And then with Travis. That's he, beautiful though. It is. Yeah. And when Travis was 18 months old and diagnosed, we, we diagnosed him on our own. We just knew that, okay, he's got, all of a sudden he's having accidents. He's drinking lots of like sippy cups. We're on a path. So we just literally put him on the kitchen counter, used Connor's glucometer and checked him and it read high. So we phoned our pediatrician and said, uh, this is what happened. And he's like, get in the car, come on over. You're like, number, our number two 
as, then, as well. Right. And so my husband scooped him up, took him to, you know, go see the doctor. And I had to stay at home with Connor because we were still trying to figure out, okay, it's time for lunch. We got to eat lunch. You're on a schedule. You got to eat at certain times. Got to do finger pokes, give insulin. So I was like, I'll stay here and do this. And I'm just devastated. And so we get in the car to start driving to go to the hospital. And he goes, I just don't understand why everybody's so upset. This is a moment of reflection as a parent and I'm like well you know it's really sad that you know Travis is a baby and you know he's got this and he goes well, I think it's great now there's somebody in the family like me I, I, <laughs> and then in that moment I stopped and I Connor's went, just a little he's, a, he's giving you all these teachable moments when he was as little, a four or five year old that's right pretty cool yeah and then Travis no problem and actually before he was diagnosed he used to cry when he was about one when Connor would get a finger poke because he didn't get one so we would actually finger poke him on occasion and he he was like oh good yeah. Now I get to go pick a treat. Yeah, so yeah, when yeah. he transitioned, it was like no problem. So did you guys keep a dollar store open for about five years? We did. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, so. And everybody that would be diagnosed that I would meet, I'd be like, go to the dollar store. I mean, I know everybody has money, but listen, yeah. you can go get $10 worth of a ton of stuff. It will save your life. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. So this is the life you're living now. Yep. Um, you and your husband are still working full time because you have to, because this is, this is life. You then meet Dr. Shapiro. Now, right. let's talk about this this doctor who has been so influential in not only your life, but the lives of probably thousands, of thousands and thousands and thousands, and thousands of people. And will be millions and millions. And will be millions. Who is based here in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Yep. And who has been doing this uh, research and incredible work in the type 1 diabetes field for a long time. Like 30 years. Yeah. So how did you meet him? How did this all come right. about? So when my kids were diagnosed, you, know, you take some time, you reflect, and you're like, I just got to live life. I got to figure out how to live life. And then I just went, I'm just the type of personality. I'm like, well, I'm not going to accept this. Like, I'm not going to accept this, that they're going to have this disease. So I'm going to, first of all, meet a bunch of people who are like us so that we have this community. And I did that by volunteering for other organizations other diabetes organizations and I was on their boards for 10 years and did this different stuff and then through that I would go to events that Dr. Shapiro was speaking at so he is Dr. James Shapiro is um famous for the Edmonton Protocol, um, which is the islet cell transplantation. And that was all done here in Edmonton. Uh, there's a whole team that started it and he took it right to fruition. Well, let's talk about what that is. Sure. What so, is the Edmonton Protocol? So the Edmonton Protocol is islet cell transplantation. And what that means is someone with type one diabetes, if they, if they qualify for the transplant, they take a cadaver pancreas, they extract the islets from it, um, and then they inject them into the liver of a person with type 1 diabetes, and they become insulin-producing cells. Into the, the liver? Or into the, the liver. Into the liver. Yeah, because that pancreas is not working. The pancreas that produces insulin has been genetically, it doesn't work anymore. Okay. So they learned through years and years of research that the liver is where it could house, and they would become islet cells that produce insulin. What's an islet? Uh, <laughs> is it, is it, should I be it's asking Dr. Shapiro? It's a cell. It's yeah. a cell. We'll have Dr. Shapiro come here okay, and we'll, give you the okay, science. Okay, we'll, we'll talk to Dr. Shapiro. I told you I'm going to ask questions because yeah, 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 I yeah. am not the coldest beer in so the fridge. So the islet cells are what produce insulin in your body. So you okay. or I that don't have diabetes. I actually have type 2. Okay. Yeah. Well then, okay, so yeah. yours still works. It just... Not well. Right. right. So whereas... 
I don't have type one or type two diabetes. So when I eat or drink anything, all of a sudden your blood sugars start to, you know, it goes, uh oh, blood sugar starting to rise. So your islet cells in your pancreas, they insulin, they instantly reduce or release insulin into the system to bring down your blood glucose. Okay. So that's what they do. Okay. So when someone has type one diabetes, their pancreas, that one percent, it, it does it not work. Does not work. Like nothing. Not nothing. Nothing. No. Okay. Back to so now what we're doing is we're taking them out of a cadaver. So someone's passed away. They yeah. donated their pancreas, yeah. uh, which is amazing that yeah. they donated their organs. Um, they take that. They literally in Edmonton, uh, there's an islet um, lab, and they shake out the islets out of this pancreas. And to do a transplant, you need hundreds of thousands. Um, so an average pancreas could be anywhere from three hundred thousand to a million islets that are in there, shake them out, they make sure they're good. Then they take them over to the university hospital, uh, University of Alberta hospital, and the patient is there awake. And they put a, um, an eye, uh, they enter into the liver from the outside while they're awake and they drip the, just a drip in the eyelets in. And within days, they become non-diabetic essentially. They don't have to check their blood sugars anymore. They don't can eat whatever they want. And those cells are protected and they release insulin into the system. For how long? Well, that's the catch. So most people who have had an islet cell transplant have had minimum two to three to make sure. Because then over time- Like in a lifetime. Yeah. So in-, in a, So in, it actually lasts a long time. The, the longest, this, isn't a, this isn't a treatment that you have to go and do like every six weeks. No. The longest living islet cell transplant patient currently is 19 years without having to take insulin. Wow. But their body will still, some people's bodies, like different things will happen and it rejects. And so the reason it's not a cure and the reason it's not for anybody under the age of 18 is because those people have to take anti-rejection drugs for the rest of their life okay. because they received donated cells. They weren't their own cells. Okay. Um, but in Edmonton, it's been done. There's been over 750 transplants since um, 1999 when they started it about 350 to 375 patients because everyone's had multiples um, and they're still working on it. They're still tweaking it, better anti-rejection drugs, better treatments. What's really exciting is that the Edmonton Protocol is world renowned and there are now 30 centers around the world that are performing the Edmonton Protocol and all those people came to Edmonton and were trained by Dr. Shapiro and his team. Yeah, because I've seen the Edmonton Protocol on the news. Like yep. they've done a lot of stories yep. on it, which is very, very cool. Yep. And there's and, and all of these doctors, all of the in Edmonton who are um, part of diabetes research, um, at the University of Alberta, under the Faculty of Medicine and Dentistry, there's the Alberta Diabetes Institute, uh, the ADI, and it's located at the Luckishing Building on campus, and it houses over 55 diabetes researchers um, that are working on all kinds of different diabetes research. Dr. Shapiro to us and to the diabetes community is, you know, that hero out there sure. um, because his whole life is to find a cure for this disease. And for me as a parent with two kids with this disease, it's awesome research for treatments. It's awesome research for new technology. Like they were an insulin pump. They, you know, do there's apps for their phones to be able to check their blood sugar. But at the end of the day, they still have the disease and it's a 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 365 days a year. The disease, disease is relentless. It is totally relentless. The disease is relentless. And so you have to be relentless to, to is it the right word, combat it or live with it or adapt life to it? You know, totally. The way I told my children is this disease is not define you. 
Mm. So never will this disease define you. You will live a normal life. You're just going to have to work twice as hard as everybody else to stay healthy and do everything you want to do. And the only two things as a person with type 1 diabetes they cannot do is they cannot be an astronaut and they cannot be in the military. Those are the only two things. So that's pretty minor. You, yeah. you know, the world is your oyster. Do what you want. Sure. So, you know, I, I, I heard Dr. Shapiro speak many times. And then um, when he did the Edmonton Protocol, uh, this organization, DRIFCAN, the Diabetes Research Institute Foundation Canada, was established. Um, and it was to help fund um, basically unrestricted funding for Dr. Shapiro and his cure-based research. Unrestricted meaning we hold the team accountable. They have to use it for cure-based diabetes research. Um, but not restricted like many grants and other um, you know, funds that they'll get from other organizations or different levels. People say, well, we want you to reach this goal. We want you to reach this goal. Well, with a grant, if they don't reach it, they have to cease what they're doing, go back, rewrite the grant, resubmit it and wait it. And it's a 12 to 18 month process. When you're moving research at the way that it's being moved, that's detrimental. You wait sure two more years. Now, now you're like, we've spent millions of dollars and we're going backwards. Yeah. Or it's on hold and we have to wait. And so many other things are changing and so much other right, stuff is happening. Right, you got to be happening. able to keep up. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I met him and a, a colleague, joint colleague said, you know, I know this mom and she's, you know, believes in what you're doing and she's local and she doesn't have a job right now. <laughs> <laughs> and so. She's got some time I on got, her I hands. got some time and I was doing all this volunteering. And so, so who are you, met, uh, let's, let's stop there. Who are you volunteering for? Because you were very passionate about this. I am. And. You, I'm feeling it right now. I'm hoping people are feeling it as they listen. I was. We know why you're passionate about it, right? Because you're boys. But what keeps you going? Like, why were you doing all this volunteer work? Really, I mean, you weren't making any money. You weren't, no. and it's not that you're doing this to make money, but you gotta live. Yeah. What drove you? You obviously want to cure. Yeah. Which makes sense. Hundred percent. Talk to us about that. Right. Well, it, it is the driving force, right? So I just want my kids to have a time when they don't have this disease. And I truly believe in my heart that Dr. Shapiro and his team, it's not one guy, he's got a whole big team that work on this and they've made such strides. Um, so that was important to me. And so what made it more important, I, I was volunteering. There's other diabetes organizations and they do lots of great work, governance, uh, awareness, education, all those pieces. But at the end of the day, when I want to put my funds into something, I want to care. And I also like to know that my funds stay local. So, you know, people work hard in their province. So in Alberta, people work hard here for their money. Um, and so when you're going to give back to something, you want to give back to your community. Sure. Right. So we know that giving to diabetes is, is not just going to stay in Alberta. The goal is that we're going to cure the 465 million people around the world that have a, have, have a form of diabetes. Right. Um, and that, you know, that's on the path with the stem cell transplants that are being done. But what, that's what drove me was that I wanted to do it. I wanted the funds to stay here. Um, and so with DriftCan, you know, it's a very small organization. Most people wouldn't know who we are. We don't spend a lot of money on advertising um, and awareness because our goal, like we're focused, that the fu many funds we can get to Dr. Shapiro, the better. So our goal is always to be 90-10. We're 90% of all dollars raised go directly to cure-based research um, in Edmonton to Dr. Shapiro and his team. And I'm very happy to say, I've only been with the organization for eight years, but in those eight years, in 2021 and 2022, we were able to achieve that, that 90% of all dollars raised went to that. 
That is awesome. That is awesome. And, and tough to achieve. I mean, I run a charity, right? Yep. Like you always want it's, your- It's hard. Hello, everybody. My name is Kyle Dubay, and I'm the host of the Relentless Podcast. I'm so glad that you're listening. I'm so glad that you're going to join us. Being relentless is not easy, but being relentless can work. That was the aha moment. Then the work started. Specifically, what I cared about was the organizations that were having an impact in the lives of youth. Everybody's welcome down here. And that's what we want at the ballpark. It is inclusive. For your first podcast, you really went all out. We're not playing here. Like, we're, this is what we do. This looks like, uh, like a low rent UFC show, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Will. Like, you you're like a the bit. Dana White of you, Ken. Uh, with the bald head, you're, maybe. Yeah. yeah. And Dana I'm, Beige. Yeah. I love talking to these folks. I love learning about them, hearing their stories, and I hope that it's going to be the same for you. But let's talk about Drift Can a little bit. Okay. It, what, what does it stand for again? Diabetes Research Institute Foundation Canada. Started in, I think you told me, 2005. 2005. Yep. And had some philanthropists that were helping out, doing some stuff, had a board, but it just kind of lost some momentum, if you will. Yeah, it did. So it was till 2005, 2010, um, when the Edmonton Protocol was up and in the media and in the news and everybody was like, well, we got to fund this. This is the cure. Um, it was great. But then from 2005 to 2010, it started to realize, well, the islet transplant can't be the cure. It's going to help people live a longer life who have diabetes, but you have anti-rejection And drugs. a better life. And a better life. But if you take one like one process and put another process in, that's not going to give you a cure. Like You can't replace one therapy with another therapy. Sure. So you take insulin, give them anti-rejection drugs. Well, we haven't cured them. We're still just treating them. Um, and it's been amazing. And over 3,000 people have been done around the world with an islet cell transplant. So that's fantastic. But it has a donation from an organ and there is such a low amount of organ donation in this country. So at some point you run out of organs and then now you can't keep doing this process. Mm. So Dr. Shapiro knew that we were going to need to move to stem cells. So he moved to starting um, in 2013, 2015 to doing stem cell transplants. But those were with a little, like, with, for lack of a better word, like a little tea bag that goes under the skin and they were putting stem cells into there. And where they got the stem cells was from an embryonic cell, embryonic stem cell. And it was work, it works. They're still working on this and they're still improving it, but they realize it's never gonna be able to be the cure because again, we're taking a donated cell and we're putting it in. And the other part is there are groups around the world that don't believe in using stem cells. So when you have a religious aspect to it, now you can't have a cure because if there's groups that won't accept it, now we can't cure the disease, Sure. right? So keep going forward. He goes, okay, this is working. Now I'm looking at this. We got to use our own stem cells. So now what he's working on literally in the lab here in Edmonton is with mice is taking blood samples from the mice. They use us, um, they gene edit them um and into becoming islet insulin producing cells and then they inject them back in and they put them into the liver and currently he's having success no anti-rejection drugs no other medication required and the mice are being cured so what he has to do now is he has to be able to repeat that um at least two thousand times with the exact same process before he can go to health canada and say we're good to go we need to go into humans and so he's been working on this for a couple years right here in edmonton and he's having great success with it it's so interesting to me and there's so much that goes into this you know there's many different diseases that you hear research research Mm -hmm. goes into the research it truly is the most important aspect of this 
And right. and I I fully get and support the idea of education and awareness and all that type of stuff. Um, being aware of your sons having type one diabetes, that's great. Being aware of the symptoms is I love that we talked about that earlier because that to me is so important. It's life saving. It is right. And if you're if you're a parent and you're seeing this, if you're anybody and you're seeing this in somebody, like yeah. it's those are signs that you need to get yeah. help. But in order to actually get really good treatments or potentially a cure, we have to have this research done. We totally do. Right. So what what is your job? What what do you do for this? So so I'm the executive director for DriftCan. Yeah. Um, and I started eight years ago. I'm the sole employee. I work from home. Main reasons is because that keeps our admin costs down. We have an awesome volunteer board um, who is really an operational board. They're, Absolutely. You know, they're the they're the back that goes. Okay, let's keep this going. We got to keep things running. If you're the if there's only one staff, you know that that board is an operational board. It, totally. And now, they and, are, and for and we people do listening, operational board versus governance. Governance is they don't do a lot of the 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 legwork or the heavy lifting or the 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 day to day operational things That's that right. happen. An operational board, they're in there just they're getting in the their, trenches. They're getting me. their hands dirty. They totally are getting their hands dirty. All volunteer. All volunteer. Uh, they all work full time uh, outside of this. Um, and then how- now What type of people do you attract to that board? Why do they care? Do they have kids so, that have type one? Are they type one diabetic people? Right. Good. Great question. Majority of them have a direct connect to diabetes. So we have someone who has had islet cell transplants and she is on our board. We have mom of um, a child with type one. We have another one that has type one. Um, we have type two diabetes on our board. So uh, there's a connection to diabetes yes. that's at a very personal level. Right. And so we have a couple of people like our board chair does not have a direct connect to diabetes. Although now he's been with us for like three years. So he now he's now. Now, now he does. That's yeah. right. And you know, our communications chair, we got her from the University of Alberta not-for-profit board uh, program that they have. And we submitted our name because I needed some help. And she came on our board to do a program like a, for her schooling. Uh, and then she's like, wait a minute, I want to stay on the board because I want to see this project to fruition and finish it. So everybody's very connected. And then um, outside of that, people go, well, how do you raise, you know, raising money is not an easy task, especially coming out of COVID. Um, And so for us, we don't do big events because when you have galas and you have walks and you have runs, they cost money. Uh So you can't meet a marker of 90, 10 if you're spending 50% on an event, you just can't. And that's just the way it is. So whatever your whatever your decision is on what you want to give to, that's actually a factor. Yeah. Um, so we really don't do those. We do do an annual virtual event that we started during COVID that you mentioned Carrie Dahl, that she is our, uh, she um, MCs it for us. And yeah. does a live interview with Dr. Shapiro every um, November for Diabetes Awareness Month. And we now have people all over the world that attend it and it's a free event. So they can hear what we're doing here in Edmonton and get the opportunity to actually speak to Dr. Shapiro and hear what he has to say. Uh, I mean, I'm fortunate. I can go to the university and I can meet up with him at any time. And I still am in awe after eight years. Sure. So I know other people with diabetes. You have his phone number. You can just I, call him I, I and be like, what's you, up? You, what's up, <laughs> Jimmy? Right. That's right. What's up, Jimmy? What's going on? So it, it's pretty spectacular. Um, but, you know, to raise money, it takes it takes a village, right? It takes oh, a village. Yeah. So we have a lot of third-party events. And so we have lots of support actually across uh, Canada and into the U.S. now because we've built some partnerships into the U.S. Um, and so, like, there's a group in Humboldt, Saskatchewan. Uh, they have, there's about 35 families that are that are affected by type 1 diabetes in the Humboldt area. And they now solely fundraise for DriftCat. 
Oh, wow. Um, and we've got people in Montreal and we've got people in Calgary. And we've got people in Nova Scotia and Miami and New Jersey and Kentucky. Mm. So we've expanded. And it's just on building those relationships. I guess people say, what do I do? You know, I build relationships. I tell people what I do with my money because why would I not do what I think is going to be the right thing knowing that I want the cure and I love that the money stays here mm -hmm. and you know insulin was discovered in 1921 in Canada at the University of Toronto so in 1921 Banting and Best discovered insulin and they sold the patent for a dollar to give the to give insulin to the world and so our mantra is Canada gave the world insulin and Alberta is going to give the world a cure it's pretty incredible very lofty goal it is but i love the 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 vision and do you think that so dr shapiro has been doing this a, a while now yep over right? 30 years yeah this we got to have this guy in the pod this this guy has no quit in him no does I'm assuming that inspires you to have no quit in you, but That's I actually think it's your boys more than anything else. It's all it's it's all combined, right? One triggers the other, triggers the other. So Dr. Shapiro and I, you know, we now it's a good it's a good tag team. Like we do, we'll do lab tours with different people, or we'll do business stuff, and we have these two sides. Um, you know, a quick little story. When I met him for the first time, I was sitting in his office with this colleague, and I was you know freaking out because I'm like, oh my god, I'm gonna sit here and talk to Dr. Shapiro. Yeah. And most people go, really, it's just a guy. But when your kids live with this disease and he's trying to solve it, he's a hero. He's a hero. Yeah. And so he comes flying into the office in his scrubs, and he's and he and he's English, so he's got this, you know, thick English accent, and he says, you know, I, not to be rude, but I got 45 minutes because I got to go back to my transplant. And I was looking at him like, you left the transplant for this? And he's like, well, yeah, I have to take a, like an hour and a half break. Like they're doing other stuff, so I wanted a, a double time. Like this is yeah. what I got to do. So we sat down, and my husband had told me when I went, don't cry, because when you talk about the boys, typically you start crying. This guy doesn't have time for this. Like he has he's no time sighed. for tears. No, he's like, get on with it. So I, so Dr. Shapiro says, you know, tell me why you're here. What do you want to do? And I open my mouth and I start crying. Yeah. And so he stops me and I'm like, oh, I, I blew it, right? And he said, no, you know what? This is perfect because what I do is behind the glass. What I do is, you know, the science. This is what we work on. But I need someone to believe in us and believe in me to be able to sell it that we need funding for this. We can't do this. Research is not cheap. And so I don't have the capability to do both roles and I don't have that passion. Right? He says, I'm a science guy. This is what I do. This is, you know, very I look analytic, at very, yeah. Uh, he said, so I need the front person who says, I believe in this guy. So I said, okay, you got to give me some time. I got to figure this out, you know, and now our trajectory for the last eight years has been amazing. And in 2022, we raised just under 1.4 million and we wow. gave 1.25 million to his research. Incredible. And, and it, you know, to get through human trials, he really does believe he needs about $20 million. Um, and so our goal is to, we want, the faster we get that $20 million to him, um, the faster we're going to move this forward. Absolutely. Essentially what you've done for Dr. Shapiro is is you're bringing the humanization side of it. Right. Right. To, to, to the cause, the story. so to speak, the story. Yeah, and I'll ask him if I ever get an opportunity to meet him. I'm really excited to meet him now. And I really love British accents, so this will be fun. <laughs> um, this, like, why did he get into this? Like, why is this important to him? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, if, if he doesn't. I asked him that. Yeah. 
it's an interesting story. So when he was young, uh, living in Leeds, England, his dad was a uh, general practitioner, a GP. And so he used to go and sit with them and put on the white coat. And um, and he always found an interest in medicine because he watched his dad and he wanted to be like his dad. But as he got older into his teenage years, he also loved um, photography. And so he was torn in high school. Like, oh, I love this photography. This is what I want to do for my life. But I love the idea of being a surgeon and, and looking into this. And he had started over there. I said, what'd you do one day? Like take the globe and spin it. And then your finger ended up on Edmonton. Like how yeah. do you come from Leeds? England? he goes, oh no, because the islet cell transplants were already in the, it was already in the making. People were already doing research in Edmonton that had not been done anywhere else in the world. And he goes, if I was going to do it, I was coming here. So he decided his dad, he talked to his dad and he said to his dad, you know, this is where I'm stuck. You know, what am I going to do? And his dad said, well, here's the thing. You can do photography as a hobby but you can't do being a surgeon as a hobby. Sure. So become a surgeon and be a great photographer on the side. Yeah. And so he's like, okay. So when he was in university in England, um, he really started studying this and getting into it and knew that stuff was happening in Canada because Canada has been on the map actually for diabetes for over a hundred years, um, which is amazing to mm -hmm. me. And the University of Alberta was on the forefront. They were part of the Banting and Best um, finding um, insulin. So he knew stuff was happening here. Uh, so he came and he finished his um, degree um, here in Edmonton at the University of Alberta. And then he stayed and got involved. And he took the Edmonton protocol from where it was to into human trials. And now it's a treatment in the province of Alberta. How can... How about this? Here's a question for you, because you're you're the salesperson. I try. <laughs> why why should people care? Why does this matter to somebody who doesn't have any type of diabetes? Right. So there's a few few answers to that actually. Um, if you're a numbers person and you think about budget and you think about what this costs, so the cost di the cost of diabetes in the province of Alberta is about four hundred and fifty million dollars to our government, and. That's not because people say, well, you get insulin pumps, you get all these, you know, you get stuff for benefit. No, that's repercussions from people having to take care of themselves. And it's not a perfect disease. No day is ever the same. So like my youngest son in 2021 ended up in the hospital for a week, had two ambulance rides. You know, what's the cost of that? And there's, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of these happen all the time. So right there, $450 million just for our province. The cost to our country for diabetes is $14 billion a year. Imagine what our province and our country could do with $450 million here or $14 billion in a nation. That right there, if someone told me there was a disease, I'd be like, that's crazy. And what's even more scary is that it is like a pandemic. This disease is growing and those numbers are gonna get bigger and bigger and bigger. And people say, why? Why are more people being diagnosed? I don't know. You know, it, a virus? So from COVID, the rate of people being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes is accelerated hmm. because people got the virus, they had the genetic disposition, and now they have the disease because COVID triggered a whole bunch of stuff with a lot of people because it was so intense. And so right there, that's a reason right there. Why would we not want to do this if, if for no other reason, the cost to our healthcare system? Yeah. But then there's the other reason. It's growing. So we've got we've to find a cure so we stop this. We have to stop the disease. And then there's the other side, Connor and Travis. Right. Right? Right. There's a side where you and your husband and your boys want your boys to be cured. Totally. 
Right. right. I want them to live a day. You know, any any child that's diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, their childhood is completely stripped from them. Mm-hmm. It really is. Because everything they have to do has to think about the disease. So when Connor started and Travis started um, kindergarten, I took 30 days off work so I could be there 100% of the time because I knew this teacher had like 30 other kids yeah. who have whatever else that's going on. They can't. They don't know my... It took me years to figure out their routine. You know, when they went to grade one, uh, I took off another month off work because that's where I put my little holidays. So I was like, we started in August training them that we set the timer for 1130 and I'm like, you have lunchtime. You have 20 minutes. You have to eat everything that we pack for you. Nothing can be left because their insulin is dosed on what their food is. So we would train them starting in August, you know, and then when they turned, you know, 17, we actually started training them from a drinking standpoint because we're not, you know, naive to think that alcohol isn't coming and alcohol is a detriment to people with type 1 diabetes. Mm. It makes them go extremely low or extremely high at any point. So we trained them on this is what you have to do and you have to eat this when you're going to do this. Sure, Because they're turning 18, maybe they want to go try drinking and having some fun with their buddies that way, right? And they can die. Right. They can die at any point. And so that's why I do this. Mm. I do it for my kids. I do it for all the families that I've met over the years, over the last 20 years who have children or are themselves type one. Um, And now it's a mission. You know, now I'm like, this is this is this is going to happen. And I am not stopping. I tell people I want to be unemployed. So we need to find the cure so Drivcan can close its doors and I can move on and see my kids and everybody else have this cure. And we go, okay, job done. Right. What celebrities have type 1 diabetes? Do you know? Like, what's, what are supposed to be? I know that uh, the, the hockey player, Max Domi. He does, yeah. And he's very open and public about he it is, and, yeah. and has shared his story. I mean, there's Nick Jonas. Okay. From the Jonas Brothers has type 1 diabetes. He was yeah. diagnosed at the age of 16 when they were on tour oh, wow. and got really sick and collapsed on the stage. Um, Halle Berry, Tom oh, Hanks. Really? Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Which just shows you that you can live a great life if you put that work in and that effort totally. in. It's right? a, this is the reason. Yeah, go back to your one question. Like, why do people care? Do people even know? Right. It's an invisible disease. Right. So sure. I'm happy my kids in some ways I go, oh, I'm happy my kids have this because, you know, in society, they look normal. They look like everybody else. They sure. don't have these facts, but they work twice as hard as everybody else. People just don't know that. It's very impressive what you're doing. I love that as a mom, you you let your heart lead you into something that you're so passionate about. But I think you're actually really fortunate too, which is which is on you. Like you're the one that made this happen where now this is actually your job. Right. Which I don't know, I'm assuming you're the same as me. I get up every day. I'm so thankful for the job I have. 100%. You know, because it, it's we get to have impact in the lives of many. How can we help you? How can we make your job a bit easier and, and hopefully help Dr. Shapiro? I mean, the, the, the obvious thing is donating money, but what does that even look like? So abso- I was just going to say funding, right? This is, people say, what else do you do? This, the absolute final answer is we have to raise money. Yeah. We have to solve this. Yeah. Um, and the great thing is if you donate, your funds stay local. Um, and if you donate from Canada, you still get a tax receipt. We're a registered charity. Okay. So people can go to our website, www.driftcan.com. They can donate if they're in Canada. And we also have availability for any elsewhere else in the world. There's a button for donate button for anywhere else in the world. Nice. I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you telling your story. Um, 
thank you so much for everything you're doing for for this community but also just like you said i mean this is this could this can affect everybody right um so i thank you so much for that listen we end the podcast or we try to end a bunch of them with uh, a scientific um i'm like dr shapiro in a way i've done a lot of scientific work on this a lot of research on this quiz just so you know i haven't we just threw some right. questions together i shouldn't i shouldn't uh <laughs> compare myself to a world-renowned research diabetic doctor. So I'm going to ask you uh, some questions, and we're going to find out if you are relentless. This is going to determine if you are relentless. Uh-oh. Just so you know, you already are. Um, this doesn't know. determine Hope anything. This is just so that people get to know you a little okay. bit better. Are you ready? I'm going to try. Fruits or vegetables? Mm, fruit. Okay. City or countryside? City. You're very quick on these answers. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Dirty bathroom or dirty kitchen? Dirty kitchen. You are fast. Like, <laughs> fast. Salty or sweet? Salty. I always find that interesting that people say fruit and then they go to salty. Yeah, true. It's interesting. They balance each other. They do. They do. Morning or night? Night. You're not a morning person. Not at all. Okay. <laughs> okay. Favorite comedy movie of all time? Oh... That's a tough one because my kids would say that I don't laugh at the movies they like that are comedies. When they say, let's watch a comedy, I'm, I always sigh. Yeah. So I would have to go with Vacation and nice. all of them. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Those are classics. They are. And do, you, do the boys laugh at those? Love though? them. Okay. Yeah. So okay. I think I love them because it makes me laugh watching them laugh. Yes. Right? Yes. And they just really are good. Uh, big party or small gathering? Big party. Oh, Okay, because it's a gala. Let's raise some dollars. No. No, okay. Because uh, then the money doesn't go. I just like parties. Okay. <laughs> you like to party. <laughs> All right, everybody. Melanie likes to party. Okay. Phone in the bathroom or no phone in the bathroom? Phone in the bathroom. Okay. Okay. Uh, favorite love song of all time? Uh, I'd have to say Your Song by Elton John because it was my wedding song. Oh, it's a nice song. Cake or pie? Cake. Last one. Describe your relentless podcast experience in four words. Oh. Thinker. Interesting. Exciting. Fun. And hmm. entertaining. Good. Good. Melanie Hibbert, the executive director of Driftcan, doing some incredible work to aid uh, the research needs for type 1 diabetes. Where can we find you and where can we find Driftcan and, and, uh, so we can support? Uh, you can find us at our website, so www.driftcan.com. D-R-I-F-C-A-N dot com. And that's where you can find me because I'm the only employee. <laughs> so the contact information yeah, is me. It's going to you. It is. No matter what email gets sent, that's it's right. going to you. You go to, to that you. website. My number is on there. My email is on there. It all comes to me. Excellent. Thank yeah. you so much for being relentless in all your endeavors. And, and most importantly, uh, I think, for being relentless for your kids. It's a beautiful story. Thanks for being here, Melanie. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right.